invite you to turn in the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 4. Be reading verses 14 to 16. Our focus this morning will be on verse 16 as we consider the theme, our confidence in Christ. Hear now the Word of God. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And now our passage. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Please be seated as we pray. O gracious God and Father, we lift our hearts up to you once again and we give you thanks for your word. And we pray that you would work in our hearts by your word and by your spirit, that we might hear not the voice of a man, but that we might hear the voice of our living and risen and reigning Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to hear and help us to heed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come this morning to one of the most precious and encouraging portions, not only of the book of Hebrews, but I would argue of the whole Word of God. Immediate context is the exhortation to those who live as you and I do in the full light and glory and liberty of the new covenant to hold fast not in our own strength, but in the strength that comes by the grace of God, to hold fast the confidence that we have in Christ and in the gospel. The great temptation for the Hebrew Christians to whom this epistle was first written was to turn back, to turn back to the types and the shadows of the law of Moses, This is a great temptation in every age of church history. It takes different forms. But to turn aside from and to depart from the simplicity of the glory of Christ freely offered to us in the gospel to something other than the gospel, to something less than 
the gospel. To something that has no power to transform and to renew and to sanctify and to satisfy us. And to bring us safely into the presence of a thrice holy God. Who reveals himself as our God and as our Father. A thrice holy God who reveals himself not only as a consuming fire, but as one who delights to be near to us, that we might not be consumed by the fire of his holiness. And so the concern is that those who have heard the gospel and those who have professed confidence in Christ would not give up, would not give up, would not turn aside, would not depart from the fullness of the revelation that has now come in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which the whole revelation of the Old Covenant was merely preparatory for. The whole movement of the book of Hebrews is to show us the glory of Christ as our sinless sacrifice and our sympathetic high priest. It's a wonder, isn't it, that he is both. He is both the sacrifice and the one who offers that sacrifice. Here in this section of Hebrews, Christ is being set forth to us in comparison to Aaron and every other merely human priest that ever ministered in the tabernacle and the temple. Christ is a great high priest because he is a good high priest. That's what makes him great. None of the other priests of the Old Covenant were ever called great. In fact, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. The costliest of all sacrifices were those that were offered by the priests. But Christ is a great high priest because he is a good high priest, a perfectly righteous and holy high priest who was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. It's not only that he didn't sin, it's that he could not sin. He is the God-man who unites our human nature to the nature of God in the person of God the Son. But furthermore, because Christ has taken our nature to himself and because he suffered sinlessly for us in our nature, he is, notice the present tense here, he is able to sympathize with us in all our weaknesses. Isn't that a wonderful present tense? Because in that one word, is, we have the glory of the revelation that Jesus Christ has risen and is reigning at God's right hand for us and for our children, for our salvation and for theirs. His sympathy is not merely the sympathy of heartfelt compassion. If, if you had been in the congregation of Virginia Beach when I preached this sermon series before, you would have heard that it's not merely the sympathy of heartfelt compassion. It's certainly that, but it's far more than that. It's the omnipotent sympathy of one who is actually able to help us with the kind of help that we so desperately need. Because he became 
our wrath-bearing substitute at the cross. He is now able to stand between us and God, bringing us into the very presence of God where we have the most intimate communion that it is possible for us to have in this world under the curse and in these bodies still corrupted by indwelling sin. And so here in verse 16, we really have the culmination of it all. It is here that we learn that because we have a great and sympathetic high priest in heaven, we now have childlike access to God by grace and through faith alone. We hope to see that this morning in three points. First, the ground of our confidence. Second, the glory of our confidence. And third, the grace of our confidence. Let's look first at the ground of our confidence. The ground of our confidence flows logically and experientially from the greatness of Christ's priesthood. Children, when we talk about the ground of something... We're talking about what supports it. We're talking about its basis or its foundation. I was reading recently of someone who was looking at a construction site, and that construction site was being worked on. He was hearing the sound of the hammers, and he was hearing all kinds of construction equipment. And there was a fence around this property, and he was wondering, why in the world am I not seeing a building? Because a skyscraper was supposedly being built on this site. And so he peeked in, and he saw that there were stories, several stories of concrete and rebar being worked on. There was a a foundation that was being made, a foundation that would support this giant, massive building that was going to be built upon it. What do we build upon? Jesus tells us that the wise man builds his house upon a rock. And why is that? Because a house built on sand has no solid foundation. It has no solid basis. It's built on something that can't possibly hold the weight that's being placed upon it. Well, in order for us to have confidence which is really the idea being expressed here in verse 16 by that word boldness, in order for us to have confidence, we need to know that there is a sufficient ground, a sufficient basis for our confidence. Let's say you go to the refrigerator. I've done this. And you pull out a gallon of milk. And you see that the date on the milk container is past its expiration date. How confident are you going to be in drinking that milk? If it were me, I would open the top and take a good whiff of that milk before guzzling it down. Maybe that's just me. But what if we're talking about the basis of your confidence for approaching God? What we read here comes to us in the form of an exhortation. But it really also has the character of a promise. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And so let's stop there and consider these words for a moment. Notice first the word therefore. That word points us back to what has already been said. And what has already been said provides us with the basis or the ground of our confidence. You and I have no basis whatsoever to enter 
the holy presence of God with confidence, for we are sinners by nature. And that's really the underlying assumption. That's the underlying assumption of the whole revelation contained in the Old Testament scriptures. That's the underlying assumption of the law of Moses and the whole system of tabernacle and temple worship. It is impossible for sinners to approach a holy God. And it was for just that reason that the throne of God, the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant, was hidden from view in the Mosaic system. No sinner could approach God with confidence. Not even the high priest could approach God with confidence unless he did so in exactly the way appointed by God, dressed in the holy garments having been consecrated with water and carrying with him the blood of atonement, even blood that was shed for his own sins. Without that blood of atonement, without that sacrifice, no one could enter the presence of God. And even the high priest could only have that confidence on a single day of the year, the day of atonement. Keep in mind that the language here in the book of Hebrews is language that reflects these Old Testament realities, these Old Testament expectations. The words, let us come, are really exactly identical to the priestly language in the Old Testament, which was the idea of drawing near. Let us draw near to God. In the book of Leviticus, the high priest would draw near to God on the Day of Atonement, but this the same chapter of Leviticus, chapter 16, that describes this for us begins with a warning about Nadab and Abihu. Children, do you remember those names? The sons of Aaron who drew near to God in their own way and with their own glory in view. And what we read of them is that they were struck dead for their arrogant presumption in drawing near to God in their own way. They were priests of God. And yet they dared to approach God on the basis of their own ideas and their own assumptions about who God is and how he is to be worshipped. They had confidence, but it was false confidence. They had boldness, but it was the boldness of shameless pride, not the boldness of faith in God. But here we are given great reason and a wonderfully solid basis for drawing near in confidence to that same God. It's the very same word that we find in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, where we hear these deeply comforting words. Therefore, he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right there, dear brothers and sisters, right there is the ground and the basis for this confidence. A confidence born not of pride or presumption, but a confidence born of faith, and that not of ourselves. I mentioned this in the Sunday school presentation this morning. When the Lord set me free by his grace, 
One thing I knew, it was his work and nothing of myself. He did it all. And it's understanding that, the magnitude of God's grace, the magnitude of my need, it's understanding that that produces in me the gratitude and the confidence in that gratitude, which is based on the wonder of the grace poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. Our confidence is in him. It's not in ourselves. And we come boldly and we come thankfully, rejoicing in him and in what he's done for us. It's a confidence not born of pride or presumption, but of faith. It's the gift of God. Do you have this confidence, dear believer? It's a confidence that God himself delights to produce in the hearts of his children. And my hope is that you children, when you come to profess your faith before the congregation, that you won't come because it's expected of you, but rather you'll come because you're coming in delight in who Christ is and what he has done for you personally in your heart. Can you say it from the heart that Christ and all that is in him is mine because I am his and for that reason I have great reason for confidence to draw near to him through his blood on the basis of his death for me on the solid ground of his present, ongoing, mediatorial intercession for me in the very throne room of God. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and is seated at God's right hand who is able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses because he himself was tempted yet was not overcome by temptation. Isn't that wonderful? We conclude with the word of God then that we have a firm basis and a solid ground for approaching God in confidence through Jesus Christ. That brings us to our second point this morning, the glory of our confidence. The glory of our confidence. The second thing that we need to consider is what it means for us to draw near to the throne of grace. We can sometimes fail to see the full significance and wonder of what we're reading and hearing in the scriptures because the words themselves are so familiar to us. But consider for a moment what it means that you and I as the children of God, as those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, who have access to God through him, what it means that we can confidently approach this throne, which is a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment. First of all, notice what the throne is not. It's not called here a throne of judgment. And this is the first aspect of the glory of this confidence that we have in Christ. This is in complete contrast to the worship of God in the Old Covenant. This aspect of boldness and confidence is something totally new. Something totally distinct. It's not something that we find in the worship of the tabernacle and the temple. There was 
a glimpse of it. There were glimpses of it, especially in the Psalms and the prophets. But this confidence is so glorious and so wonderful in comparison to what God's people had under Moses that it's called the liberty of the Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This liberty that we have in Christ and in our access to God through him is a worship of God without any need for veiled faces. That's what Paul says there. It refers to the veil that Moses had to put over his face when he came down from the mountain because he had been in the very presence of this holy God He had spoken to God face to face, but when he came down, the people were not able to bear the sight of even the reflections of the radiance of God's glory that was remaining on Moses' face. You see, in the worship of the new covenant, I should say, in the worship of the old covenant, there was not this aspect of liberty. In comparison, the believer's approach to God was one characterized by fear and bondage because judgment and condemnation were very much in the air. There were thunderings and lightnings. And as John Owen puts it, everything was done at a distance in the Old Covenant. This is not to say that God has changed. It's to say that God's dealings with us have unfolded and been unfurled like a flower. There was this dreadfulness about the presence of God because sin had not yet been fully and finally dealt with in Christ. But now in Christ, all of that, all of that dread is taken away. Christ was born under the law in order to set us free from the law's condemnation and curse. Christ became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ submitted himself to judgment and wrath so that we might live without fear of the guilt and the fearful expectation of judgment that our sins so rightly deserve. And so the first thing this confidence we have in Christ does is it takes away that kind of fear which would keep us from ever seeing God as a father rather than as a judge. And we need to see him that way. We need to see him as our father in order that we might approach him with confidence. A child ought to be able to approach his or her father with confidence that his or her father will give good things. But we have a far, far better father than any earthly father could ever hope to be. It's not all, though. The second thing that this confidence does is it brings us very near to God in Christ. It brings us, in fact, as near to God as we can possibly be. Had you ever thought about that? You're brought as near to God in Christ as you can possibly be brought. In Christ, we have the liberty and the boldness to cry out to God as children to their Father by the Spirit who now dwells in our hearts by faith. We cry out, Abba, Father. And that cry 
of intimate nearness. And do you see what that kind of confidence does? Not only does it take away the guilt and the fear that would consume us because of the greatness and the weight and the infinite magnitude of our sins against an infinite God, but it does far more than that. It takes away the fear that God cannot possibly accept us. It takes away the fear that God cannot possibly accept us. That fear is a proper fear. That fear is a necessary fear. That fear is the fear of those who are yet under the bondage of the law. And remember, the law is good and and holy and spiritual. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us and our sin, which the law rightly and justly condemns. And the law was meant to point God's people to Christ and to their great need for a great high priest who would take their sin and their guilt upon himself. And every sinner needs to feel the weight of that. And feeling the weight of that to be driven out of himself and to cast himself fully and freely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you done that by the grace of God? We need to see ourselves for what we are. We need to see ourselves in the vileness and the wretchedness and the guilt and the shame and the filth and the condemnation of our sins We need to feel that if we are left to ourselves, if we are left in our sins, then there is absolutely no hope for miserable wretches like us. And that's exactly what the law does. And that's all that the law, in and of itself, apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, can ever do. I was in a prison a few weeks ago in a seminary class. And the instructor was speaking to the prisoners about the baptism of Jesus. And you remember the baptism of Jesus, the Father's voice is heard saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And these men who perhaps had never been well pleasing to anybody in the whole world were told that if you are in Christ in that glorious union that we have with him, if you are truly in Christ, then what is said of Christ may also be said of you. I am well pleased with you, my son or my daughter, not in yourself, but in Christ. And looking out, these men hardened over the years, hardened by prison life, hardened by their own sins, the tears were streaming down. Because they had been told that it's possible that God could be pleased even with them in Jesus Christ. The glory of this confidence that we have in Christ has forever silenced all the law's threats. Romans chapter 8, that glorious chapter of liberty. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did in the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. And what that means is that you and I, if we are in Christ, if we have rested our confidence entirely upon Christ and the perfection of his merit and the greatness of his mediation as our high priest and the efficacy and the atoning power of his sacrifice, 
If we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we have acceptance with God. God accepts us as righteous in his sight on the basis of the righteousness of another, on the basis of the righteousness of his son. God acquits us of all of our sins. He never looks at them again in order to hold them against us. He wipes them all away as if we had never offended at all, as if we had never offended him in the slightest or committed the least transgression of his holy law. Christ is not really known as a mediator. John Calvin says, Christ is not really known as a mediator except all doubt as to our access to God is removed. Otherwise, the conclusion here drawn would not stand. We have a high priest who is willing to help us. Therefore, we may come boldly and without any hesitation to the throne of grace. The glory of our confidence is Christ himself and the access to God the Father that we have through faith in him. Which brings us to our last point. The grace of our confidence. All of this naturally leads us to the question, what does it mean for us to boldly approach the throne of grace? Children, what do you think it means? I'm sure you understand already that what is most important is not so much the throne, but the one who sits on that throne. But you and I can't see the throne of God. What does it mean for us to draw near to a throne that we can't see? In the confidence that we have a high priest who is able and willing to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses, yet we can't see him. Well, the first thing that we need to realize is that in the Greek language, what we actually read here is keep on coming to the throne of grace. Keep on coming. The exhortation is to keep on coming and coming and coming and coming again and again and again to this throne, which is a throne of grace. And as we come, we will surely find the mercy and the grace that we need. Do you need mercy? Do you need grace? I know I do. Not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but all the way to the end. And perhaps... We'll need it the most on our deathbed. Having served all of our lives, perhaps, this great high priest. And yet there, the temptations, I'm told, can be stronger than they've ever been throughout life. And oh, how we will need that grace and that mercy Oh, how we, will be needed, how we will need to be reminded, perhaps by our loved ones, opening a Bible and reading the word or singing hymns to us on our deathbed. Oh, how we will need that grace. And oh, how confident we can be that that grace will be there. The first thing that we need to realize is that we need to keep coming and coming and coming to this throne. The Holy Spirit who is in us unites us to the throne and 
It's by him and through Christ, our great high priest, that we're able to boldly approach God as our smiling father and not as our frowning judge. This throne is a throne of grace. But how do we approach it? Not by looking within or by seeking to come with the right feelings or with the right heart dispositions. That kind of confidence would be a false and fleeting and ephemeral confidence. But that's what we do when we tell ourselves that the way of believing the promises of God and of resting on those promises is too easy. When we do that, we're acting like Naaman the Syrian, aren't we? You remember him, children? He thought when he was told to bathe in the Jordan River that there were better rivers and that the word of God needed to make sense to him before he could believe. It's in that way that we subtly rely on our own thinking rather than on the promises of God. And we all do this at times. But you see, dear brothers and sisters, the Lord grants the greatest comfort to our hearts when our faith is in him and his promises, not in anything in us, not in anything accomplished by us. Our standing before the throne of God is not dependent on anything God sees in us but only on the mercy and grace that are in Jesus Christ alone. Understanding that and truly embracing and believing it, and, and it's, it's something that we have to continue to grow in because we're so prone to forget it. But understanding that is what produces the comfort and the assurance that you and I need. And it's only in that comfort and in that assurance that we will be able to come boldly, confidently, to the throne of grace and to seek there that mercy and that grace that we need. And so how do we come? How do we draw near to this throne of grace? By remembering and resting on the ground of our confidence, which is Christ and Christ alone. Robert Trail says it well when he says, there is more of grace in the promise than there can be of sin and misery in the man that pleads it or the woman or the child that pleads it. You're coming to a throne, and that means that it's a place of great power and authority, but it's also a throne of grace, and that means that there is inexhaustible mercy and grace to be found there in the person who is grace manifest in the flesh, Jesus Christ. present and perpetual high priestly ministry of Christ should give you the confidence that you need to keep coming again and again and again for the pardoning and sanctifying grace the grace that is freely dispensed from this throne you have a friend and a brother in the very throne room of God and there is mercy seated upon that throne in the person of Jesus Christ mercy is that kindness of God by which he doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace is that kindness of God by which he gives us what we don't deserve. We have at God's right hand in our sympathetic Savior, Jesus Christ, a high priest who is both the mercy and grace of God in himself. And knowing this and believing this, let us draw near to him by taking hold of his promises and by heartfelt prayer and worship, trusting in him to sympathize with us in our need and to give us exactly what we need and exactly the measure and exactly the time that we need it.
And so, dear brothers and sisters, because we have a great and sympathetic high priest in heaven, we now have childlike access to God by grace and through faith alone. Let me close with this. The biographer of a well-known New Testament Greek scholar says that he was speaking to his students of the great tenderness and sympathy of Christ for sinners. When he left the classroom, a student followed him into his study where he found his professor surrounded by his books with tears streaming uncontrollably down his face. The professor looked up and could only say, and to think, and to think, he's the same Jesus now. He's the same Jesus now. Yesterday, today, and forever. There's no need that you have There's no need that you have that he doesn't already know and that he's not able to meet with all sufficient grace. There's no prayer that he's unwilling to hear. There's no sin that he's unwilling to forgive. There's no promise in the scriptures that he's unable to fulfill. And so what do you do? Draw near to Christ in your need. Bring your need with you to that throne. Draw near to him with the confidence of faith as a child of God with access through Christ to the very throne of grace. And then seek mercy and grace from him who is the fountain of every blessing and the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Let us pray.